Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he now not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who's at the right hand of God, who, intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say to these things? Right now, I want to do a recap of last week's sermon because we're talking about these things. What shall we say to all of these things? That's what we looked at last week. So in response to that, we're going to be clearly told what we should say to these things. Like what, what should be our response to the things we heard last week? Well, I'm glad we all asked. We remember from last week that God works all things together for the good for those who love God. Isn't that good news? If you love God, He works all things together for the good. Now, all things, in, in the sense, like evil things, somehow God works evil things for our good. And the, the, the analogy I used was Jordan baking bread. And bread, the outcome of all the ingredients that go into bread is really tasty, warm bread. Slap some butter on that, and it's an amazing loaf of sourdough bread. But there are ingredients in that bread, if eaten alone, are just not good at all. And so I said, what if you walked in on me and I was just sitting over a bowl of flour and just chumping it on the flour, just blah, 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 flour everywhere? But man, that's really weird because flour alone is not good. And the text tells us not that all things, evil things, not that everything that happens in our life is good, but that everything that happens in our life will be worked out for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's an amazing promise. So that's a part of these things we're talking about. What shall we say to these things? That for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for the good. We also learn that He does not, He does, He does this, He does this, works all things together for the good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose, He does this for those who are called according to His purpose, not for those who are calling on God for their purposes. We don't call on God according to our purpose. The text tells us that God calls on us according to His purpose. We are called and caught up into the purposes of God. Welcome to Christianity. Christianity isn't handing God all of our purposes and then getting God to align with us. Christianity is getting caught up into the eternal purposes of God. And God has had his eye on you and his mind on you and his heart on you from eternity past and it will be there into eternity future. We are caught up into the great purposes of God. And he purposed, we are told in the text from last week, he purposed to foreknow us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He purposed to foreknow and predestine us. He foreknew and predestined some in ways that he did not foreknow and predestine others. His grace was pointed toward us. He foreknew you and predestined you. And there's two questions that I brought up last week concerning this word that I think over the next couple years, the word predestination in particular, or the word like we'll see today, the word elect, 
There are two questions from Romans chapter 9 that are going to really help us out over the next couple, couple of months. Because periodically over the next couple of weeks we'll be hearing these words. And typically these words can be a little bit confusing for some people or frustrating for some people. And so what I, what I did was brought us to two questions that are brought up in Romans chapter 9 that really just help us. Just kind of not necessarily lighten the blow of these words for knowledge or predestination or election. All of the things that we'll be talking about here and there. These two questions really just help us to understand what God has to say. And the two questions come, the first one comes from nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. And here's what it says. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not yet done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the, I'm going to challenge you in the same way I challenged you last week. The first impulse that comes up inside of us when we hear that, the very first impulse is, that sounds unjust. When we, when we read, just read the plain meaning of the text, we think, well, that doesn't sound right. And God is so kind because he anticipates our primary objections to this doctrine. Then the next line says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And I just want to say, well, why is that there? It's because upon reading those verses, that's what everyone's thinking. Well, that sounds unjust. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't, it doesn't go into my ears and sound like that's how things are. That sounds unjust. And God says, by no means. God is not unjust. And the second question comes up after, is there injustice in God? The second question is, why does God st still find fault with people? And we see that in verses 17 to 19. Here's what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed among all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, the first impulse upon reading a verse like that is, well, why does God find fault with people then? If he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and hardens whom he will harden, then why does God still find fault? That's the first impulse from reading a verse like that. That's where almost everyone's mind goes. That doesn't sound right. Here's the answer we get back from God. It's the same answer Job got back. When he questioned the Lord, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has not the potter right, no right over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So the answer we get back as we hear these words is, Well, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to get it all. But don't talk back to him. Who are you to talk back to God? That's what we get. And the problem is for so many of us that we don't like the answers God gives to the definitions of the words we're talking about. So why does God find fault? Why does God find fault? We get who are you. So we know from last week these things that we're considering that he did not foreknow and predestine everyone to life. But he did that for you. He did that for you. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a recipient of the massive grace of God. 
The massive grace of God, the point you came to believe in him, to repent and believe in him, wasn't simply that moment in time, God responding to you. When you came to a point of repentance and faith, you are responding to the eternal purposes of God in your life. His purposes for you span throughout all eternity. And we saw that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All in past tense. It's as good as done. This is what God is doing in his children. This unbreakable chain of salvation from foreknowledge all the way to glorification. God's work is in your life. And the testimony of the believer is not about the work of the believer, but the work of Almighty God. Every one of us, our story is that God has been gracious to us. Behold the grace of God, this unbreakable chain. For those who he justifies, he will glorify. It's all God's work in our life. And here's the truth of grace that I said last week and I'll say again. Grace, the grace of God, the grace of God is massively offensive before it's delightful. And if God's grace, His unmerited favor upon you, has never offended you, it may be that you've never understood God's grace. Because God's grace to us not, doesn't just come to us unmerited, it comes ill-merited. God did not bestow His grace upon us because of us. And that statement alone we want skin in the game. And we want something to cling on to to say that God, He responded it, with His grace to me because of something in me. And the grace of God says, no, He didn't. God's grace is found securely in His heart. And He, upon unmerited people who didn't deserve it, who deserved the opposite, deserved condemnation, God was gracious with. The grace of God offends before it delights. Now remember, it's all in the context of suffering, and it was intended to help people in their moments of agony and their difficulty under the mighty hand of Rome to be reminded that they are in the mightier hand of God. That although Rome could do a lot, although the Jewish people could do a lot to them, they could not shake them of their eternal promises that God had given them. God was with them and God had his hand on them. Now, here we get to the, today's text. What shall we say to these things? To all the things we heard last week. To all the things that we've been hearing. How shall we respond? Now, this, okay, if those things are true, if that's true, that God has done this for me and I'm caught up in the eternal purposes of God and that nothing that comes my way won't be for my good, what shall we say? Well, how about this response? If God is for us, who could be against us? If those things are true, if God has been gracious to me and I am his child, what could anybody do to me? Because if the God of the universe, the supreme of all supreme beings, has called me, justified me, is going to glorify me, if I'm His and His purposes are upon me, who can do anything to me? If God is for me, who could be against me? 
God is for His people. It sounds simple enough, but so often we think the opposite is true. We think the enemy is going to destroy the purposes of God both in our lives and in the church's life. And I think when we begin to look at this life and this world and we look at what happens in the media and the news, pessimism rules the hearts of most people when it comes to the purposes of God. And for you and I, we look, we turn on the TV, and we see it looks like we're just getting assaulted from all angles. The kingdom of God is not advancing forcefully. It's not moving forward. It seems like we're all getting kicked in the teeth. It seems like nobody cares about God's law. It seems like nobody cares about God's purposes, and everybody has abandoned the faith. It seems like atheism is on the rise, and people are abandoning the churches we hear. And there's books written about how everybody's leaving the faith and everybody's gone and this is the last Christian generation. But here the text says, if God is for us, who could be against us? You know, Christians, we we often get in defensive modes, defensive postures, but the posture of the Christian church in the scripture should not be one of defense. Onward. It's forward. It's progress. The kingdom of God is advancing throughout this world as yeast goes through the leaven of a lump. It it, it goes through that lump. We are moving forward and growing and building. The kingdom of God is advancing. It may not feel like it is around us, but you know what? In other pockets of the globe, and we have all this information now, we can see that the kingdom of God is exploding. And as we get our kind of America first mentality, we see everything going around here. But then we don't think about South America or China or all the places in the world that Iraq and Iran, that the kingdom of God is advancing. It is moving forward. People are meeting Jesus because if God is for his people, who could be against us? You can kill us, but you can't stop us. We win. Because God wins. If God is for His people, who can win against God? Nobody. You put God and anybody else in a boxing ring together, who wins? God. Carmen sang a little bit about that, about 1991. You can't keep Him down. Jesus, the resurrected one, is alive forevermore, and he has defeated Satan and his, and, and his minions, and he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. The kingdom of God marches on, and so do the people of God. I think this is massively important for us in our day. If God is for us, who shall be against us? And I want to turn pessimism into optimism in you. I really do. I want us to be an optimistic people about the work of God in our lives as individuals and in our lives as a church. Think about being under Roman rule. And you're hearing this letter. You're under Roman rule. You're in Rome. Persecution is broke broke forth. We're just a few years away. Nero taking over and slaughtering tens of thousands of believers. But persecution is already around. Roman soldiers walk outside of your door on this Lord's Day gathering as we're gathering together, being quiet, singing quietly, words being preached, and persecutions all around. Your cousin just got taken away by the Roman guard. Centurion took him away. We haven't heard yet what's going to happen. The Roman, the Roman Empire has ruled the world, dominated the known world forever. And here we're told if God is for us, who could be against us? What about Caesar? Can he be against us? What about Caesar against God? Who wins in that fight? What about the Roman Empire against God? Nope. No match 
for the God of the universe. Under this massive Roman rule, not only will they go up against the hostility of Judaism, but also the biggest empire the world has ever known. But if God is for us, it does not matter if Rome or Judaism against us. It does not matter if the radical left is against us, or atheism is against us, or anyone is against us. We are with God, and God is with His people. And He is for His people in ways that He is not for the world of darkness. So I think we have to understand this today. I think we have to. God's kingdom really is expanding. It's not shrinking. We're not going to lose. In the scope of human history, we will not lose. God will not lose this world. He won't. He's got us, and He's got the world. The gospel is spreading. It's not dying. I think, by the grace of God, not only is this church going to be planted, it's going to be planted, and we're going to see fruit generation after generation after generation. And my prayer and expectation is that 200 years from now, there's a Christ Church Carbondale in this city, and there's more Christians in this city in 200 years. If Christ does not return by then, there's going to be more Christians in this city than there is right now. The gospel is going to go forth. Revivals are going to come. God is at work. If God is for us, we will not lose. You don't want to be on the side of those who are opposed to God. You don't want to be on the side of those who are opposing God. It will not go well for them. And he's proven how much he is for us, not simply for eternity, but even right now. God is for you. Expect you to see. Expect that you see the reality of that in your life. God is for you. Let's not face life tomorrow and think, what, what terrible things are going to happen and be destroyed in my life? But what is, how does God want to use the work of my hands to expand his kingdom this week? How does God want to use my labor to see his glory go forth this week? Changes everything. Pessimism, optimism. Verse 32, consider what God has done for us in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God the Father did not spare the Son, Jesus Christ, but gave Him up for us all. The question that rises in mind is spare from what? What did God the Father not spare God the Son from? What was it? He didn't spare his son. But he exposed his son. He put upon his son something that was supposed to come to someone else. And this is the very heart of the Christian faith. Penal, substitutionary atonement. The very heart of the Christian faith. God the Father did not spare the son from what the us, us all, gave him up for us all what we deserved. We don't receive what we deserve because Jesus received what we deserve for us. This is the kind of thing that can go in one ear and out the other because you've heard it your entire life. We've heard that Jesus died for me. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
Because we can care bear the cross like crazy. We can make it fluffy and precious moments and all of that. The epicenter of the wrath of God in the Bible is seen at the cross of Christ. It's not the book of Joshua. It's not even hell, even though they're comparative. Hell and the cross. This is the wrath of God. Now this is important. This is not a reference to the general death of Christ for everyone. I preached a couple sermon, preached a sermon a couple years ago. There is a sense in which that Jesus died for every man, woman, child who's ever existed in the history of the world. That's not the death that we're specifically talking about, though. This is specifically talking about the death of Christ for his bride. The death of Christ for his bride. There are different ways that Christ died for the world, like the cosmos, the earth, and then for every single man, woman, child in the world, and then for his bride, the church. And the applications of what Christ did for those three groups are different. Jesus' death for everyone was not the exact same way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The foundation of a husband's love to his wife is the special love that Jesus has for his bride. I'm not to love every woman like I'm to love my wife. She's my wife. I'm to love her specially and specifically the way Christ loved and gave himself up for his bride, the church. The, there's a, a massive amount of importance in the word us here. I want you to look in your, your text here in these four verses, and we're going to see the word us over and over again. The first time we see the word us is in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Us and us. Now, a lot of times when we read the word us, we just think humans. Like that just means humanity. When Paul is using the word us here, he's never referencing, he's not referencing humanity. He's referencing believers. If God is for the believer, who can be against us? If God is for the church, who can be against the church? If God is for the Christian, who can be against the Christian? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in 32, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's a specific de definition for the all. Who is the all? It's us. Every one of us have been recipients of the saving work of Jesus that he did on the cross for us. Us all. In other words, if you're not a believer out here, you can claim no saving benefits from Jesus. And if you don't repent and believe in your life, you can never claim the saving benefits of Jesus on the cross. Jesus gave himself up for us all. And then, how will, not he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The us. It's, there, there are precious promises for believers here that a non-believer can't take hold of. These are for us. What should we say to all these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? These promises, these are for me. Thank you. Thank you, God. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? That's us, the believer, the Christian. And then in verse 34, who is interceding for us? Us. And then in next week's sermon, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Us. And if you never see the specific work of Jesus on the cross for you personally, and you just think Jesus' death for everyone was the exact same way and the exact same motivated by the exact same love, you will miss precious promises that are there for you. Amen. Us. 
us. Apart from anything that we did. And solely based on the love of Jesus. Christians are the us. God did not spare His own Son from receiving what the Bride of Christ deserved. What we all deserved. God's righteous, holy, pure wrath. Mankind has sinned against God. And it is wickedness beyond all imagination. Everyone in this room who is now a believer in Jesus, but in ways you have no idea how to comprehend, you have sinned against God with a wickedness and a vileness that is beyond imagination. You and I have no frame of reference of how to even comprehend how wicked our sin against God really was. Even the man or the woman who said and really would give the shirt off their back to anybody who would need it, their sin against God is eternal and it's cosmic and it's so wicked and dark that the only way to explain it is the fires of hell and the cross of Christ. I don't know if we can ever comprehend how evil our rebellion is. The book of Joshua, just read through the book of Joshua in the Bible reading plan. Many of you are reading through that. 31 kings set aside for destruction. God's wrath was made visible. It helps us to see what Jesus took on the cross for us. The visible demonstration of God's wrath throughout the Canaanite cities. It's nothing compared to what Christ endured. The cross, God's wrath made visible again. The eternal fires of hell. Let me ask you, what if the eternal fires of hell, what if the punishment actually fits the crime? And what if people, because we always bring objections to the fairness of God, or the rightness of God, or even the holiness of God, especially the world does, when we think about the fires of hell, and we think it can't be that bad, because that's too much of a punishment for our sin. Eternal fire, really? That's too much for temporary rebellion. But what if the punishment fits the crime? Then the punishment gives us insight into the magnitude of the crime. And friends, what you and I deserve from God, what we merited, this is how big every single person in here's sin was. You deserve eternal punishment. And so do I. That's how big our sin was. And God did not spare His Son for people who deserved that. It wasn't that you were better than anybody else and that you did deserve what Jesus did for you. He did not spare His Son for His enemies for his enemies. God didn't have to do that for anyone, but he did it for you in love. The crime must have been really bad if the punishment fits the crime, but God gave up his son, did not spare his son to save People who had sinned against him. People that deserve hell. Why did he do that? Because God's love for you is unimaginably great. His love and his wrath are attributes that are there together. And God loved the very people he was angry with. 
this is so big, we can't understand all the details of this. We don't have to. But all I know is that God's love is otherworldly and unimaginable and unconditional. It's based solely upon Himself. And it's not based upon anything lovely in us. He has loved us as if we are lovely. And in doing so, He changes us. He makes us more and more like Jesus. The power of God's love actually changes rebellious sinners into God-lovers into people who want to be like Jesus, people who begin to be, by the grace of God, more and more and more holy the rest of their life. God's love changes us. Our love does not change God. It was His special love for us that transformed and changed us. It was not our special love for God that made Him save us. He did not spare His Son for you. Jesus actually died. He took names to the cross and the blood that bled out of his body came out with your name on it. That's why you're a Christian. Jesus died in our place. And if God did that, okay, this is the magnitude of what we're going to hear in this, in this statement. If God did that, the greatest thing we could possibly think of, sacrificed his very own son for us, then the lesser things, if this is the biggest thing, giving the Son in the place of actual sinners, if He did that out of love, will He not give us everything else? If He did the biggest thing, will He not graciously give us everything else He's promised to us? What could be greater, bigger, more powerful than giving His Son, not sparing His Son for us? And if he did that, he will not withhold any spiritual and one day physical blessing from you. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. He will not, he will not withhold from you the things Christ purchased for you. He will give them to you. If he didn't, if he didn't spare his own son, then he will give you all things. That's what the text says. If the greater, then the lesser. If the greater, then the rest. Verse 32b. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If He did not spare His Son, in other words, 32a, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now what are the all things? If God didn't spare His Son, He's going to give us the rest. If God gave His Son for you, then for Him to not save you would be to be discrediting the work of the Son. If Jesus died for you, then for God the Father, God the, Holy, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit not come and save you, for Him to not save you would be God the Father denying the Son the reward of His suffering. He will save you and then He will give you all the things that Christ purchased for you. Everything, everyone Jesus died to save will be saved. If you are with Christ, all that is Christ's will be yours. He will give you all things. Because Christ died for us, God will justify us and He will glorify us and we will inherit the earth. If Jesus died for you, then all that is in Christ, all that is His, is given to you. 
all things given to you, the inheritance of the firstborn among many brothers handed to the brothers, the sisters that are in Christ. Guys, we will inherit the earth. You've heard me talk about this pretty regularly. This earth is ours because Jesus purchased it for us. And we will reign with him and rule with him. If he died for us and did not spare his own son, he will give us all things. Now for some reason, again, in this life, we have somewhat of a, I think, when I say we, I think big, broad strokes here, evangelicalism, we still have a pessimistic view about everything. And the expectation is not the advance. The expectation isn't in our life that God is actually for us. The expectation, although we do have promises of suffering in our Bible for us personally, the expectation is the church is just, everything's getting worse and worse and the church is going to fail. And, and yeah, eternally God will do all things. But what about now? God is doing things now in your life and in our lives. Victorious. And that as we follow the Lord and press on, we're going to see Him work. We can expect that God is giving us all things. One day He will give us everything that Christ has promised, but even now the promises of God are given to us. He will not withhold from you. He's not withholding with a maniacal smile. <laughs> he, his smile is toward you because Jesus died for you and He didn't spare His Son for you. He loves you. And he is for you. If the greater, then the rest. And if that's true, if all those things are true, it's almost like we get another statement. It's like, okay, if all of that's true, then let's think this out. If those things are true, that God is for me, who could be against me? If it's true that God gave his son up for us, and if it's true that in Christ he will give us all things, that he will not withhold for us from us, and if that's true, then who could possibly condemn us? Rome? No. The Pharisees? No. What was that? No, not even God. Not even God can condemn us because He saved us. Look at verse 33 and 34a. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? If God did that for you, who can condemn you? If God the Father's gavel has come down and He said, Forgiven, righteous, son, daughter, who can bring a gavel down that meets that gavel? Who can speak a word to you of condemnation? Nobody. The West Coast, East Coast, United States, radical left, Islam, fem feminism, LGBTQ+, atheist, agnostics, anybody who comes against us, who can bring a charge against us? Nobody. Nobody. That is the answer. No one. Who can bring a condemnable charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And friends, you're the elect of God. Do you know Jesus? You are the elect of God and nobody can bring a charge against you. He is the highest of high supreme courts. It doesn't matter what the courts of this land says. God says about you and says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter. Nobody can bring condemnation against you. That's the final word. Amen. Who can stop the Almighty? 
He is determined to save you and give you all things. And he has saved you and he will give you all things and nothing can stop him. Nothing. He will not change his mind. No matter how, you, how much you struggle, no matter how much you fail, you think he didn't know that when he saved you, when he foreknew you, when he predestined you, when he justified you, when he glorified you. You don't think he knew the mess he was getting? And he called you anyways. He loved you anyways. You think you can run? Maybe a matter of time. If you're his, he will get you. Better bow a knee now and repent now. He loves you. You hear me say this. If you're his, he loves you, and there's nothing you can do about that. Nothing. You can't condemn yourself. He has claim on you. You're his. And your hand is nothing compared to the hand of God. Deal with it. The Almighty. We're His. Just kind of wait, hover in that a little bit. You belong to God. And I know in this room, there's people who struggle a lot. The people who struggle. And every single one of us who's human, there's a struggle. It's hard. Life is hard. Life is awesome. But if you belong to Him... He's going to see you through. And if you're suffering right now, you're struggling right now, He's going to see you through. And He's going to give you all things. Hang in there. This life is a vapor. Okay? Hang in there for the vapor. Maybe hard, really hard for you. The vapor may be really hard. But your eternity is secure. You belong to God. And He will give you all things. He will give you joy forevermore. You'll be with him. Hang in there. Who can condemn? As if that's not enough, press on. Christ, in fact, is our intercessor, making sure that God the Father always and regularly hears prayers and petitions about us. Look at verse 34. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's he interceding for? It's not the world. It's for us, for you, for the children of God, for his beloved brothers and sisters, the family of God. Jesus is interceding for us as the risen Savior. He did in this all for love for us. The one who died in your place is now at the right hand of God. And what is his activity? Praying for you as your representative to the Father. And your Father has sent his Son to die for his enemies so that Jesus would come and bring, bring his people to him in prayer for all eternity. And Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is continually bringing our name to the God of the universe, praying for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says something similar. Here's what it says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in that office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost 
How much is to the uttermost? Not just save, save to the uttermost. Not just a little bit of salvation, the whole shebang. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus loves to make intercession for you. Intercede, pray, bring our name up to the Father. And because He's the God of the universe, the mystery of the Godhead, always our name is included. Our faces, our life, our eternity in their hands, in His hands, God's hands, and our name is there being interceded for. God the Father has no wrath for you. He hears about you day in and day out from the Son, Jesus Christ. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are for you, not against you. Here's our challenge. Believe it. Believe it. Believe it. It was the sin of Israel couldn't believe the promises of God. Faithlessness. It remains that nagging sin in the life of a believer. I believe. Help my unbelief. Is God really for me? You bet. He is. You're safe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, sheds even more light on this for us. I want to read it for us. Here's what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only is Christ interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, He is representing us and we are there with him right now. Say, my life's tough. Well, right now, you are, right now, you are raised with Christ. And your eternity is secure, secure as being at the right hand of the Father, because that's where you're at. We say, God feels near. Well, he's not, God feels far. He's not. You're as near as his right hand, as near as Christ is to the hand of the Father, interceding for you. There you are. In his presence, not experiencing his wrath and experiencing his love. We're with Christ. He represents every one of his bride and we are all there with him. So all this to say, 34b, we finish with the, with the words, you are safe. You are safe. Who raised us up and seated us at the right hand of God and who interceded, who is interceding for us. And then verse 35 to finish, and that's what we'll start next week. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If that's true, if all that's true, how could you possibly be separated from the love of Christ? And you want some love bombs next week? You want to hear about the earth-shaking, otherworldly, impossible to come up with love on this earth, impossible to come up with love of God for you? Show up next week and Adam will tell you about it. And bring your friends to hear about it. It's a message nobody else in the world has. They don't have it. They don't have a love like this. The, world, the love in the world is all conditional. The love of God is unconditional. Amen. That's why it's so offensive. He has to meet the conditions. We can't meet Him. You're safe. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're safe. You are secure. And if you're truly in Christ, hear me say this, then you have full assurance of your eternity. 
you're with Christ right now in the heavenly places. You're secure. So let's respond. How do we respond to this? My goodness. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? He would not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. If that's true, let's take Rome. If that's, if that's true... Let's take the good old U.S. of A. If that's true, let's take this world. Let's march. Cut us. Persecute us. Do whatever you want to us. The purposes of God will not be stopped. We're taking that hill. We're taking that nation. We're taking that city. We're taking that neighborhood. We're taking our friends. And we're going to tell them about the love of Jesus until they repent or until they raise their fist and run. But we're telling them about the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's true, let's take the world. Southern Illinois belongs to us because it belongs to God and He will graciously give us all things. Let's move on. Let's press forward. Let's not stand back. Let's evangelize our homes and take our home for the glory of Jesus. You say, I'm not an evangelist. Yes, you are in your home. Be an evangelist there. Evangelize your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. Tell them about Jesus. They grow up, you know, and they have kids. You want to see this earth transformed, take evangelism in your home, your family, neighborhoods, friends, coworkers, cities, and nations seriously? And let's watch the work of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, I thank you that you are for us. Goodness. <laughs> oh remarkable it's remarkable God I ask for everyone here that we for those who know Jesus that we would just the delight that's on the other end of the offense of your grace and your unconditional love help us to press into that step in it and just salivate to worship and thank you for it God thank you that you have been gracious to me and loved me it, it's not because of me. It's not because I'm better than my neighbor, friends, whoever. It's because your love and your grace upon me. I've not deserved it. I have ill-deserved it, but you have been kind to me. And I thank you. For those who don't know you in here, Lord, they've heard about your special love and your grace, and right now they're hearing it, and I pray that if they don't know you, that they would stop, repent right now for the way they're living, and they would believe in you, Jesus. I ask that you would grant them the ability to do that. I pray they would see the rebellion and they would trust in you, be born again and changed forevermore. So God, do that, I ask. It's going to be our joy to sing and respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you want to pray.